Hey guys, I have some great news. I've been working hard behind the scenes to bring you companies and products that I think you'll like and that will help to enhance your life. I'm happy to announce the first of these right now, and it's the official beard product company of the American History Podcast, Fable Beard Company. I've used their products myself for a few months, and I have to say, they are the best. The folks over at Fable Beard Company are committed to creating top-quality men's beard grooming products. They have amazing beard oil, balms, and other grooming supplies. I recently purchased the Candyman Beard Oil, and let me tell you, the scent is amazing. It's caramel apple, and wow, um, I'm wearing it right now, and I literally want to eat my beard off. And the wife, she loves it as well. But hey, it's just one of several that are with us here for only a limited time, and they're specific to fall. They also have the Harvester, which is fantastic. And then there's the Savior, which is pumpkin spice scented. I mean, who doesn't love some pumpkin spice at this time of the year? If a uh, CBD your thing, well, maybe you're looking for some CBD beard oil. Fable Beard Company has you covered. They offer an entire line of beard products that use non-psychoactive cannabinoid that can be used as a daily supplement to contribute to the overall health and wellness of your beard. I myself just purchased the Roaster and the Grower. These are beard oils that are infused with CBD, and I cannot wait to try them. Now, finally, I've been using the beard butter on my tattoos, and then the colors just come alive, and your skin, trust me, it's never been softer. Remember, the holiday season is just around the corner, so head on over to FableBeardCompany.com and get some great gifts for the bearded men in your family. Check out their entire line of products. And when you check out, be sure that you use the coupon code SEAN15 and get 15% off your total order. All right, on with the show. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 18, The Imperial Moment, Part 3. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back to the show. Before we get started, let me invite you to check out the website. Now, I admit at the time of this recording, I've been a bit remiss in updating the website. So I'm going to add some sources to it before this is actually released, so go check them out. Also, you can head over to the Facebook page and like the page. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at American Hiscast. So there are plenty of places to find me and interact with me if you so desire. Now, if you want to call me an idiot or something worse, just send me an email. The email address is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com, and I spell sean, S-H-A-W-N. Believe it or not, I've been doing this for three years now, and not once have I made that clear. So perhaps you were trying to send me some hate mail, and you couldn't get it delivered. Well, now you can. Also, amazingly, the show over the last few months has been growing at a rate of about, oh, 8 to 10% per month. So I'm considering offering show merchandise, such as mugs or shirts, and perhaps even a Warswick bobblehead. If you'd like something like that, let me know. I don't want to do it if there's no interest, so just drop me an email and let me know what you'd like. And I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that if you want to support the show, there are several ways to do so. First, and this one costs you nothing, next time you shop on Amazon, go to the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.com. From there, click on Resources and click one of those sources. Now, you don't have to buy the actual book, but as long as you enter Amazon via that link... We'll get a few pennies from Amazon, and you get your products. So it's a win-win. And of course, we have our Patreon group. Now, for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and get some goodies. For $3, or at the $3 level, you get access to the bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended. At $5 a month, 
Um, you get a bonus episode once a year minimum and the bonus series 1983. Now, amazingly, we recently had two new members join up at the general level, which is $10 a month. Um, those two amazing people are Andres Carrillo and Anthony Farnan. So thank you two very much. I'm humbled that you believe in what we're doing enough to support us at that level. Seriously, thank you again. All right, so it's time. This week, the song of the week is Hello Frisco, performed by Oliver Klein. And I'll see you on the other side. Hello Central, hello Central, can't you see? Kindly hurry, kindly hurry, just for me. Please do get me San Francisco. Someone's waiting all alone. Frisco is her name, she's at the Golden Gate. Central, it's a shame for her to have to wait. Please, long distance, do connect me. Get her on the telephone. Hello, Frisco, hello. Okay, the first thing I want to talk about today is the open door policy in China. This is when foreign powers in China wanted access to the huge Chinese market and the chance to convert the Chinese to Christianity. Now, this is going to be especially um, an especially important time in Chinese history, one that affects the world today, especially when it comes to how China interacts with other powers. Now, while we in the West uh, don't think about this too often, if we do at all, I can assure you the leadership in China remember this very well. Anyway, by the late 19th century, Japan, along with the European imperial powers, and that includes Russia, had carved much of China up into separate spheres of influence. I should mention that Russia outright took territory, including the region that is now host to the city of Vladivostok and the, far, and the Russian Far East. Within each sphere, one nation held economic dominance. Now, the United States became involved in China as early as the 1840s. Seeing the signing of the Treaty of Nanking, which ended the First Opium War, they were worried what this opening of Chinese ports to foreign trade might mean for American trade in the Pacific. President John Tyler sent a mission to China, um, led by Caleb Cushing, with the goal of impressing the court and obtaining favorable trade rights. Eventually, the result was the Treaty of Wang, I'm going to totally destroy this, of Wangia, signed in 1844. Now, the United States received most favored nation status as well as extraterritoriality. This latter point meant that any legal cases which involved American citizens inside China would be tried by Western judges rather than Chinese judges. So in the next decade, having signed several trade deals with China, commerce quickly grew between the two nations and missionaries were active throughout China. Now, by the summer of 1899, the United States had several decades of experience in China. It was at this time that Secretary of State John Hay issued the open door note. Now, just a side note, due to China's geographic distance from the U.S., the Americans feared they might lose access to China 
if it did not act quickly. So the note urged all of the great powers to agree that in their spheres of influence, they would respect certain Chinese rights and the ideal of fair economic competition. This was the so-called open door. It gained wide acceptance in the United States. However, in reality, it was a weak policy and it didn't gain international acceptance. In the next year, the Boxer Rebellion broke out. Now, the official name of the group was not Boxers. It was the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. We don't know for sure, but it is surmised that American missionaries active in the region where the group first gained traction started calling them Boxers. Anyway, be that as it may, the Boxers were a group of Chinese nationalists, and like millions of other Chinese people, they were angry at the fact that they were subjugated by foreign powers. Now, as you can probably imagine, the imperial powers of Europe did not take too kindly to this. In fact, they dispatched a multinational force of about 18,000 to put down the rebellion. Included in this force were soldiers from Russia, Japan, Britain, France, Germany, and even the United States, which contributed uh, 2,500 troops. Now, of course, the imperial troops were successful, and the victorious powers assessed an indemnity of $333 million on China. That doesn't sound like a lot today, but just to give you an idea of how much that was, the U.S. dollar from 1913 to today has lost about 98% of its value. So you're talking about a lot of money um, back in those days. Eventually, the United States forgave $18 million of the indemnity. Furthermore, as a gesture of goodwill, um, the Chinese government set aside that money to educate a select group of Chinese students in the United States. These students would later on play a significant role and westernizing Asia. Another outcome of that rebellion was that, in 1900, Hay announced that henceforth the open door would embrace the territorial integrity of China and its commercial treaties. He was seeking to eliminate the carving up of China after the rebellion. He also did not ask for formal acceptance. Now, this is an interesting event. Think about it. The United States, in 1900, is, in a way, acting as the policeman of the world, already. In this case, it might be the right thing to do, but one wonders if the United States was really prepared to back it up, and but and by what right did it make itself the arbitrator of all that is good in the world? Hmm. More on that in a future episode, but keep that in mind. So that brings us to President Theodore Roosevelt and foreign policy. Now, I don't want to go um, over territory that we've already covered, but remember, he was nominated by the GOP in 1900, to run as vice president with William McKinley. The Republican platform endorsed, amongst other uh, major ideas, overseas expansion. Now, of course, McKinley was assassinated, and Roosevelt becomes president. Roosevelt is significant in that he was the first president to play um, a significant role in world affairs. It was T.R. who had his speak softly but carry a big stick, and it is this big stick policy that we are now going to look at. But keep in mind... Um, Roosevelt was a huge proponent of military and naval, especially naval preparedness. All right, so first let's look at the Panama Canal. The Spanish-American War illustrated the United States military needed a way to connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And remember, TR is a proponent of naval strength, and it was a bit difficult for ships to go around South America and then proceed to either the West Coast or Asia. Also, the United States now had to protect Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines, and merchant ships. So there were several problems um, to building a canal in Central America, and the first was legal. 
The Clayton-Bulwer Treaty of 1850 between the United States and Britain prohibited any country from having exclusive control over a canal in Central America. That's an interesting treaty if it's between only the United States and Britain, but they're saying no one can have exclusive control. But anyways, uh, a second one was that between 1878 and 1889, the builder of the Suez Canal, Ferdinand de Lesseps, could not make a canal in Panama work. So now the United States was eager to take over the project and see if it could make it work. Thus, in 1901, we get the hay um, Pausifot Treaty. I probably messed that up as well. But anyways, um, in this treaty, the, the British agreed to give the United States the right to build a canal and the right to fortify it as well. Now, part of the reason for this is that Britain was occupied with growing German strength and the Second Boer War in South Africa. Now, one thing I think about when I see this, or I read it, or I think about it, is where did the British get the right to give the United States the right to build the canal? If you've listened to our episode in Season 2 on American Empire and imperialism, um, this is what I'm trying to get at. So you might want to go back and re-listen to that. But we're going to kind of come back to all those ideas again in a couple of episodes. Anyway, be that as it may, the Colombian Senate rejected a treaty with the United States for a canal in Panama. Remember, this was Colombian territory at this point. The Colombians, for their part, um, viewed the growing American power and motives in the area with suspicions. It's probably a good idea considering the history of the United States in that part of the world, but I digress. If you know anything about TR, you know he wasn't a man who gave up easily. This is where we get the idea of gunboat diplomacy. The French representative, Philippe Banau-Varia, worked with Panamanian revolutionaries to raise a tiny army and win independence from Colombia. The United States sent naval forces into the area, and they did not allow Colombian troops to cross the isthmus, and so the revolutionaries were victorious. Thus, on November 6, 1903, President Roosevelt officially recognized Panama. As you can probably imagine, Roosevelt's role in Panama became controversial, at first, Americans saw his role in the revolution as legitimate. However, T.R., not one to shy away from taking credit, in 1911 claimed, quote, I took the canal, end quote. Now, this statement sparked a wave of controversy. The United States then suffered diplomatic fallout as it had violated the spirit of its own Monroe Doctrine by tearing Panama loose from Colombia. Latin American countries resented the, quote, Colossus of the North, end quote, after it took Puerto Rico, Cuba, and now Panama. In the end, the Panama Canal was completed in 1914. Are you a fan of the show and you're looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, Next Level American History Podcast is Liberty Classroom. This is a fantastic site for parents who have kids and want to enhance their learning or for adults who are lifelong learners like myself. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com. On the right side, you will see a linked photo or an ad for Liberty Classroom. Click on that bad boy, and you're ready to join. You'll find courses on American history, but also on Latin American history, economics, logic, and many other subjects. All of them are taught by fantastic teachers and professors whom I trust. People like Tom Woods, graduate of Harvard and Columbia Universities, Bradley Berzer, Robert Murphy, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbener, and many other fantastic scholars. Seriously, this is an amazing site. If you're looking for a way to learn the things they didn't teach you in high school, unless you had me as a teacher, of course, then this is the place for you. Finally, if you click on that link, the American History Podcast gets a kickback. So it's a great way to support the show, and it costs you, the listener, absolutely nothing. 
So get on over to the website, click on Tom Woods mug, and in no time, you'll be on your way to an amazing education. Okay, so let's talk about the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Roosevelt saw aggressive German and British bill collections in Latin America as a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. So let's talk about this for a minute. Venezuela and the Dominican Republic were both in severe debt to bankers from both countries. Germany sank two Venezuelan gunboats trying to um, seek forced payment of the debt. As a response, Roosevelt devised a policy of, quote, preventative intervention that came to be known as the Roosevelt Corollary. Now, this policy was that in any future financial crises concerning Latin American debt, the United States would intervene, take over customs houses, pay off debts for that country, and then keep European powers out of the Western Hemisphere. Thus, the United States became, quote, the policeman of the Western Hemisphere, end quote. This role contrasted with the ideal of the Monroe Doctrine that had merely told European powers to stay out, although I think one could probably argue that this role is implied. Either way, the policy was a radical departure, but its association with the Monroe Doctrine helped it to gain public acceptance. Furthermore, Latin America saw this as American imperialism, and the result was bitter relations between the United States and the various nations of Latin America. Furthermore, the corollary was later used to justify major American interventions and repeated landings of U.S. Marines in Latin America. Finally, a 1905 treaty gave the U.S. supervisory powers over Dominican tariff collections, and in effect, the Dominican Republic became a protectorate of the United States. Before we move on, I want to mention Cuba. The United States kept high tariffs against Cuban sugar at the behest of sugar growers. A resulting recession in Cuba, combined with discontent over the Platt Amendment, led to a Cuban revolution in 1906. Roosevelt then sent in troops in 1906 to restore order, and they remained for three years, but they were again sent in in 1917 and remained until 1922. So this begins a long period of unrest in Cuba. Now let's talk about Asia. In 1904, we get to the Russo-Japanese War. Russia and Japan went over um, went to war over ports in Manchuria and Korea. Now Japan ended up destroying much of Russia's fleet, shocking the world. This was the first time an Asian power had defeated a European power. Roosevelt intervened in an attempt to prevent either side from gaining a monopoly in Asia. He was, of course, concerned about the newly acquired colony in the Philippines. But Japan had secretly sent T or asked TR to help sponsor peace negotiations. The Tsar was quite happy to negotiate as a revolution had broken out in 1905, and he was intent on focusing on domestic issues instead of foreign policy. All of this led to the Treaty of Portsmouth, 1905. It stated that Japan would gain the southern half of Sakhalin Island, but not the northern half, and would receive no indemnity from Russia. Further, Russia retained the northern portion of Sakhalin, but agreed to withdraw from Manchuria. Russia signed over its 25-year lease on Port Arthur to Japan. An excellent natural harbor, Port Arthur was the causus belli of the war. There was a secret portion of the treaty which stated that Roosevelt agreed to accept future Japanese dominance of Korea. Now for his mediation, Tiar was nominated for and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906. Now there was another reason that he won, and that is the fact that he helped to arrange an international conference at Alger... Jekidas, um, messing that up, Spain in 1906 to mediate imperialistic disputes between France and Germany. Now, I should note that um, Henry Kissinger, in his recent book titled On China, 
notes that this instance of American diplomacy was a rare illustration of the use of or concern for the balance of power. Roosevelt was attempting to maintain the balance of power in the region. Now, how often does American diplomacy attempt to maintain the status quo? Not often. Unless, of course, it's to maintain American hegemony. At least that has certainly been the idea for the last two decades. If you don't believe me, listen to George W. Bush's second inaugural address and his speech at West Point in 2002. Now, there were some negative results that came out of all of this. First, U.S.-Russian relations suffered as Russia believed TR's treaty robbed them of an eventual military victory over Japan. This might have been wishful thinking on the part of the Russians, but they really did believe they would have eventually won. Moreover, there were savage massacres of Russian Jews due to pogroms, and these drew protests from the American government. A second negative result? Japan felt that it was robbed of its indemnity and blamed the United States. This, All of this is kind of the start of a naval arms race between the United States and Japan in Asia. Um, that was the result of mutual distrust between the two countries. So you could say that the 20th century, um, the U.S.-Russian rivalry and the seeds for World War II are really planted as early as the Russo-Japanese War. All right, so let's look for a minute or two at Japan and the United States. Between 1907 and 1909, TR sent the Great White Fleet on a highly visible tour around the world. The hulls of the 16 battleships were painted white, signifying peace. Now, although the tour was friendly, it was meant to send a message to Japan and the European powers that the U.S. Navy was a formidable force to be reckoned with. Um, the president regarded the tour as his most important contribution to peace. Now, I should mention um, something at this point. In the late 19th and early 20th century, one of the most influential thinkers was Alfred Thayer Mahan. Now, I mentioned him before, specifically in episode 3.16, um, but I want to mention him again. He really was a major influence on not just TR, but on the Japanese and Germans and many other nations. As a matter of fact, Kaiser Wilhelm ordered his naval officers to read Mahan. As I mentioned, he even affected the Japanese. His book, Influence of Sea Power Upon History, was translated into Japanese and used as a textbook by the Imperial Japanese Navy. So what did Mahan argue? His thesis was that the greatness of a nation was linked to its association with the sea. Further, he argued that the best defense is a good offense. Finally, the command of the sea and naval supremacy was paramount. Thus, one needed to destroy or neutralize enemy ships through the use of capital ships. This would, in the end, be the logic behind the building of what the British termed dreadnoughts and the U.S. Navy referred to as battleships. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this, but um, it's going to be something that we will discuss in depth in Season 4, so just keep it in mind. In the end, the United States and Japan came to two agreements. The first, the Root Takahira Agreement of 1908, said that both would respect each other's territorial possessions in the Pacific and uphold the open-door policy. The second one, the Lansing-Ishi Agreement of 1917, aimed to reduce German influence in and around China in World War I, and it was an agreement in which the United States acknowledged Japan's special interests in China through the open-door policy. But as you can probably see, the Japanese and Americans are on a collision course in the Pacific. Okay, so that's all for today. Um, I thank you very much for listening, and until next time, good day.
Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.